0: You are listening to a sermon from First Christian Church of Van Alstine, Disciples of Christ, located in Van Alstine, Texas. I pray that this message blesses you and gives you comfort and hope in Christ throughout the week. Now, please enjoy this message from
1: Dr. Doug Brown. Good morning. Welcome to this time of worship. These are unusual circumstances, and um, we are planning to provide a mini-service that hopefully will be available for you each Sunday morning. As much as possible, I want to invite you to gather at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning and view the video of worship so that we can feel like we as a community are gathering even though we aren't all gathering in the same place. Each week I plan to have a pastoral prayer and I will share with you some of the prayer concerns within our Um, congregation. I also want to say a a brief word each Sunday um, to suggest how our faith can help us address this time of anxiety as we face the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And uh, and then I'll have a message each Sunday also. But before we have our prayer, I do want to mention a couple of um, actually mostly praises within the life of our congregation Last week, I mentioned Aubrey Tillett, who I believe is about four months old. She uh, has been home all this week. They actually gave the family a nebulizer, and they've been doing breathing treatments at home. Aubrey is doing very well. She's eating well, and um, we, we still want to remember Aubrey in our prayers because she is uh, very small and, um, and so young. So we want to lift her and, and mom and dad, uh, Jess and Ashley up as well. Also, I want to mention Chowning, our one of our elders, who's been having chemo treatments for several months. She had a scan recently, and there is no sign of cancer anymore. So we want to celebrate that. Uh, she is continuing to do a couple more treatments just to be sure and on the safe side. But there is no sign of cancer, and Chowning is feeling so much better and uh, getting stronger. And so we want to celebrate Chowning's good news. And then finally, I want to mention uh, Lindsay Murphy, one of our uh, active young members. She traveled to New York City recently and got sick about two weeks ago. She put herself in self-quarantine, not sure if it was the coronavirus or not. She got tested, and the results came back this week that it was not the coronavirus. She had some different type of respiratory uh, illness, And uh, she's doing better and excited to be out of quarantine, able to hold her babies and and, uh, stay involved with her family. So we celebrate this good news. Let's bow for our morning prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this church, the stones and bricks and mortar that have secured this sacred place for many, many years. This is a sacred place because it has echoed praises for many decades. It is sacred because men and women and young people have heard your message preached here. It is a sacred place also because children and adults have committed themselves to serve you in this place and have been baptized in your spirit. But we are reminded during this difficult time that the church is so much more than bricks and mortar and a building. And as we gather in this time in separate places— We do have the unity of our faith in Christ and the unity that comes through your Holy Spirit. We ask that you be with those around the world who have been directly impacted by the coronavirus. We ask that you be with our own faith community as each one of us has health concerns and needs, and we want to lift those up to you during this time. Give us strength and courage during these times of adversity. Help us to remember your promise to be with us in every circumstance of life. We ask all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Now this morning I want to suggest that there are three things for us to focus on from a faith perspective as um, we deal with the anxiety of the coronavirus. Those three things, first we must redirect our fear. Second, we must live by faith. Third, we must walk in a spirit of love. Now this morning, I want to just say a few things about the first focus, redirecting our fear. Next week, I'll have a few comments on how we live by faith. And then in the third week, I'll talk a little bit about walking in love. The situation uh, we are encountering in our community and around the world is creating a great deal of anxiety and fear. One of the things that Jesus often told His followers in the New Testament, be not afraid. Fear not. But the thing we need to uh, really be clear about is having fear and anxiety in and of itself is not uh, the crucial thing. The crucial thing is, how do we direct that fear or how do we redirect that fear? In the Old Testament, there are numerous instances when God tells the Israelites to fear him. In fact, in the book of Psalms alone, the word fear is used 68 times. Only eight of those times does it talk about fearing something out in the world. 60 of those times it's used in a positive way, talking about fear of God. The Hebrew word for fear can also be translated as to be in awe of or to have reverence for. Now, fear comes when we have a heightened sense of anxiety and we get anxious because we feel like we're losing control of our lives. So rather than giving that fear to the coronavirus or the pandemic or government regulations, we need to redirect it. Focus our fear or reverence on God. It is good to acknowledge we are not in control of everything that happens in our lives or in the world around us. But let's don't look to the coronavirus or government regulations. Let us look to God. And let us trust that in spite of these times of adversity, God is still with us. And we can still rely on God's promises. When we feel that sense that we are losing control or we're not in control of what's happening, we have three options. We can focus on the circumstances themselves, or we can focus on ourselves, or we can focus on God. We know not to focus on the circumstances because even times of adversity, the circumstances around us are constantly changing. We know not to focus on ourselves because we're not that reliable we're not that secure, we're not that stable. So when we feel anxious because we're not in control of everything that's happening around us, let us focus on God. Fear God, have reverence for God, and have trust that God is with us and we can rely on His promises in spite of the adversity we are now experiencing. There was one person I forgot to mention during the pastoral prayer. I wanted to be sure to let everyone know that Charlie Rice, two weeks ago, fell and broke his hip. He has now had a successful surgery, and he's been doing the rehab, and he is back at home and, and doing much better. Uh, of course, they don't want visitors during this time, but I want you to know about Charlie's situation and uh, I want you to keep Charlie and Margot in your prayers. Thank you. <laughs> Morning scripture passage is found in gospel, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. And um, this is the, the final message in my series of messages uh, on Bible stories, and today is number 5, The Woman with a Reputation. So here's what we read in the Gospel of John. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one by one, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and sin no more. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. There was a six-year-old girl who was asking her mom and dad what the difference is between a priest and a pastor. Well, her dad is a pastor, and so he explained, well, one difference is priests cannot get married. They are devoted to God. A minister is devoted to God too, but a minister can get married. So it's like having his cake and eating it too. The little girl was kind of puzzled and she said, So priests can't eat cake? <laughs> Easy to get confused at times, isn't it? And we see that in the dynamic in today's scripture passage as the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they are quick to remind Jesus that the Mosaic law stipulated that such a woman should be stoned to death. And they wanted to know what Jesus said. The scribes probably weren't that surprised to find a woman in this kind of an act because the morals in those days were very low at this time. Furthermore, it was rare. Even though the Mosaic law called for having women like this stoned, it was very rare for that part of the law to be implemented. And also, if the truth be told, the Mosaic law called for stoning of the woman and the man in this situation. So where was the man? Why did the scribes and Pharisees not bring him before Jesus? So it's a little disingenuous for the Scribes and Pharisees to act indignant about this situation because they often had a double standard in how they applied the law. This is an example of the scribes and Pharisees trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus said, go ahead and stone her, as the Mosaic law says, then they could accuse him before the Roman authorities because Rome had taken away the death penalty from the Jews being able to implement in their society. If Jesus said, no, let the woman go, then they could accuse him in front of the Sanhedrin or the religious authorities for not administering Mosaic law. So they thought they had Jesus no matter how he responded. So Jesus responds by quietly kneeling down on the ground, not saying anything, and he begins to write in the dirt on the ground. This is perhaps one of the most dramatic silences in the whole New Testament. No one is saying a word. The disciples aren't talking, and that was rare. The woman's not saying anything, maybe an occasional sob. The scribes and Pharisees aren't saying anything at first, but then they get anxious that Jesus isn't answering them, so they push Him. And Jesus writes on the ground, and then He says, Let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they went away. Now, as we think about drawing lessons from today's biblical story, I want to suggest, what if Jesus wrote three words on the ground? And those are the highlights of the lessons we can draw from this biblical encounter with a woman who had a bad reputation. If Jesus wrote three words on the ground, what might they be? First one I want to suggest his conscience. There is no doubt that what Jesus wrote on the ground that day pricked the consciences of the scribes and Pharisees. After Jesus called on the, first, on, the, on the one who was without sin to cast the first stone, the Scriptures tell us the scribes and Pharisees felt the conviction of their own sin. They felt the conviction of their, their own consciences. They didn't drop the stones for no reason at all. They felt the conviction of their own sinfulness. Now, Jesus wasn't suggesting that only a sinless person could pass judgment on another. If that was the case, we'd have to eliminate all of our court systems. If that's what Jesus was saying, we would have to empty our prisons and return the world to anarchy. Because there are no sinless judges and there are no sinless officers of the law. Now, Jesus also wasn't suggesting that all of the scribes and Pharisees that gathered that day were guilty of adultery. There were no doubt some good and reputable men in that group. What Jesus was trying to do was get the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, to look at themselves. If any of them could truly say the taint of sin had never touched their lives, then they could proceed. I like the story of a woman executive who had moved up the ladder of success and she was moving to a new job. And for the first time in her career, the new company was paying for her to move. And so when the movers showed up, they asked, now what do you want us to take? She said, just take it all. Box it all up, take it all. And when she got to her new home in a new city and began to unbox things, she discovered they also had boxed up her waste baskets, and they had included in the boxes all of her old garbage. Old newspapers, empty Coke bottles, grapefruit peels, all of it was boxed up so she had carried her old garbage with her. I think that's a great parable for many of us in the world today we carry around spiritual and emotional and relational garbage. And we are reluctant to let it go. The scribes and Pharisees in today's story had their own spiritual garbage and Jesus called them on it. Jesus' words were a shock that awakened the woman's accusers to their own sinfulness and it left them feeling ashamed. In essence, the woman's accusers became cowards as they stood in front of Jesus. They recognized that they too were sinful. And so they dropped their stones and walked away. They came hoping to hear judgment from Jesus on this poor woman, but instead they heard judgment from within their their own hearts. They came hoping to hear one more Pronouncement in a harsh way of the mosaic law but instead they heard the still small voice of god from within their own hearts now there's an interesting addendum in one of the early manuscripts of john's gospel for one of the verses in this passage it's actually verse six and the addendum says and some of our current biblical translations even added as a footnote but the addendum says, Jesus stooped down and with His finger wrote in the ground the sin of each one of the accusers. Can you picture that? To have the foreknowledge, to know what each of those religious leaders was guilty of, and then to write a word in the ground that identified their own particular sin, dishonors His parents, uses foul language, abuses his wife, embezzled money. He's a cheat. He's a liar. And one by one, as they look over his shoulders and they see their particular sin written in the ground, they get embarrassed. They get ashamed. And they drop their stone and walk away. Edward Hallowell lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. He tells of uh, taking his son to lunch at a pizza place one day, and there were Three boys sitting uh, in the booth right behind them. And the boys were all dressed in tennis whites. Uh, obviously, they had just been at the tennis club having tennis practice. And he could hear the boys talking. There were three of them, but two of them were talking back and forth. And they were talking about another boy who's also on the tennis team but wasn't there. His name was Mike, and they were telling stories about how they don't like the way he he dresses, and they don't like his personality, and he's too much of a nerd, and nobody likes him. And they go on and on, and the third boy doesn't say anything. Finally, the two boys turn to the third one, and they say, how come when the coach tells us to find a hitting partner, you always hit with Mike. Nobody likes Mike. Nobody wants to be around with Mike. Nobody wants to play with Mike. Why do you always choose to hit with him? third boy said, that is why I do. Because no one else treats him right. And Edward Hollowell, as he looked at that one boy, and then he thought about his five-year-old son who was with him. And he thought, I so hope my son grows up and as a teenager can have the courage and the spirit of what is right that I see in that teenager there. All of us fall short of what God expects when he calls us to live in a righteous way. The first possible word Jesus might have written on the ground is the word, a second possibility, empathy. Perhaps Jesus wrote the word empathy or compassion. There were two parallel strains to Jesus' personality. First, Jesus could be very stern. He made the, the pathway to eternal life extremely difficult. In fact, Jesus said, if anyone loves their father or, mother more than me, then they're not worthy of me. He said, If you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and pick up my cross. He also said, The gateway into heaven is very narrow and very few will be able to enter in. Jesus had harsh words to say about marriage and divorce, He had severe words to say about people who judge other people severely. And he had very caustic words, often, for the scribes and Pharisees. Now the second part to Jesus' personality was his tenderness. Jesus was compassionate. And he wanted other people to be compassionate as well. Jesus had a big heart, especially for those who were lost or who had gone astray. We see this in the Gospel of Luke in the back-to-back-to-back three parables of lostness. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost or prodigal son. We also see this compassion for those who've gone astray in the way Jesus interacted with Zacchaeus. We see it in the the kindness and the way He talked to the woman who washed His feet with her tears and dried them with the hair on her head. And we see it in the way He wanted salvation for the woman who had been married many, many times. But most of all, we see Jesus' compassion in how He treated the woman in this story. He saved her from harsh judgment and and severe punishment that the scribes and Pharisees wanted to implement against her. T.S. Eliot in one of his plays has a character named Maggie and she's always being harassed by her brother. Her brother won't let her forget the things that she's done wrong and he always hangs them over her head, and and he refuses to forgive her. Even at night, sometimes she'll go to bed crying because he, he won't forgive her, and he hangs on to every bad thing she's ever done. And then one day, Maggie says to her brother, you are so hard. You are unforgiving. That's not right for a human, especially if you are a Christian. It is a sin to be hard to others think that's true you think it's a sin for us to be hard to others our hope comes from the forgiveness that God offers to us if that is true if we receive God's forgiveness and then are unforgiving towards others is that a sin Alexander Pope, in his universal prayer, wrote these words. The mercy I to others show, that mercy also shown to me. The mercy I to others show, that mercy also shown to me. Now, Pope's words are faulty in the sense that if our forgiveness from God is contingent upon our forgiving of others, then we're all in trouble. But Pope's words are in harmony with what Jesus taught when Jesus said, if we have been forgiven by God, we too must be forgiving of one another. Cush is a school in Brooklyn, New York that provides academic services for mentally and emotionally disadvantaged children. And a father was doing a speech at one of Chush's fundraisers, and he said, I believe that everything God does is done with perfection. But where is the perfection in my son? My son was born with mental deficiencies. My son cannot learn like other children can. My son cannot remember facts and information like other children can. So where is the perfection in my son? People in the audience were surprised by the question. And it was a troubling question to reflect on. And then this father said, I believe the perfection for my son comes in how other people interact with him. And then the father told a story of how recently he and his son, Shayla, had been out walking in the park and they saw some boys playing baseball. And these were boys that Shayla knew. And Shayla asked his dad, do you think they would let me play baseball with them? Shayla's dad wasn't sure because he knew no boy would really want Shayla on their baseball team. But the father went and approached one of the boys who was in the outfield and asked if Shayla could join the game with them. And the boy looked around at other teammates as if trying to get some help, and no one said anything. And so the boy said, well, okay, it's the eighth inning. We're losing by six runs, but Shayla can be on our team, and we'll try to let him bat in the ninth inning, the last inning. Well, that eighth inning, the team that was losing by six runs, Shayla's team, scored three runs. So then in the ninth inning, they held the opponent and they came to bat. They were losing by three runs. They had the bases loaded and there were two outs and they let Shayla come up to bat. Now, there's no way Shayla's going to get a hit. He doesn't even know how to hold the bat. And so on the first pitch, the pitcher moves very close and softly tosses the ball under him and Shayla tries an awkward swing. Then one of Shayla's teammates comes up behind him and puts his arms around Shayla and the two of them hold the bat together. And again, the pitcher gives a soft toss and Shayla and his teammate swing the bat together and they hit a slow roller toward the pitcher. And everyone's yelling, run Shayla, run to first. Well, Shayla's never run to first in his life. So he starts running as the teammate points him in the right direction. Well, the pitcher has the ball, and he has plenty of time to throw Shayla out. But he throws a high-arcing throw over the head of the first baseman, and it lands in the outfield. And Shayla gets to first safely, and everyone's yelling, run to second, Shayla, run to second. So Shayla runs to second base, and the right fielder has the ball, could easily throw him out at second base, but he throws a high-arcing throw, goes all the way over the third baseman's head. So the shortstop comes to second base and points Shayla toward third and goes, run to third, Shayla! Run to third! And Shayla runs to third. All the other base runners have already scored. And now, all of the players in the field are gathered around Shayla, pointing him toward home. Run to home, Shayla! Run to home! And Shayla runs home and scores the winning run. And all 18 players, players from both teams, lift Shayla up on their shoulders and dance around, making him the hero of the game. When the father finished telling that story, he had tears rolling down his cheeks. And he said, I believe those 18 boys found their perfection in how they treated Shayla in that moment. A second possible word Jesus could have written on the ground, empathy or compassion. That brings me to a third word. Hope. The last possible word is hope. This is the one word we cannot live without. What did Jesus say to the woman? Do you remember? Go and sin no more. That was a word of warning. But it also was a word of admonition. And most importantly, it was a word of hope. This woman would go back to her old neighborhood She would go back to her old acquaintances. But she would now be carrying with her the stigma of a well-publicized transgression. It would not be easy. But Jesus told her, go and sin no more. It is a word of hope because Jesus was expressing to this woman that she could do so much more with her life than what she had done to this point. He was encouraging her not to settle for the lowest common denominator in the values she reflected in her life. Jesus was identifying that this woman could do so much more could do so much better. She could actually live a life of abundance. Clarence McCartney, a great biblical scholar, once suggested that when we get to the gates of heaven, there will be angels there greeting us as we walk through the gates. One angel will call to us as we walk through the gates of heaven, enter and weep no more. Another angel will cry out, Enter and fear no more. Another angel will cry out, Enter and labor no more. The greatest sense of hope and peace will come from the angel that cries out, Enter and sin no more. I'll tell you about my oldest son, my firstborn, Chris. From the time he was born, Chris was my little buddy. At the age of one, I taught Chris how to go down the stairs. I taught him at the mall. There was this little gathering place, and there were these very uh, short carpeted stairs. So I taught Chris how to go down the stairs. And when we got home, he wanted to show his mom. We had much steeper stairs. And he came down the stairs the way I taught him, which was face first on his belly, And Melanie's wondering, why would you teach him to go down the stairs like that? For his one-year birthday, I got Chris his first basketball goal. We had a basement in Missouri, and we set it up down there, a little tyke's goal, and we had a carpeted area where we could play and dribble. And Melanie's like, what in the world is a one-year-old going to do with a basketball goal? Like, I don't know, maybe he can rebound and bring the ball to me. Chris and I started playing basketball together. At the age of five, I was Chris's coach in the YMCA League. And the way their league rules were for that youngest division, the defense all had to stay inside the paint area so the offensive players could surround the paint area, and they could have an opportunity to get an open shot or to dribble the ball without getting it stolen. If they got into the paint area, well, the defense could steal it, but as long as they stayed out on the perimeter. The other unique rule this league had was the coach could be on the court with the team. So I actually got to be on the court and pass to each one and I would move the ball around so everyone got opportunities to shoot and make plays and when we missed, we would go back on defense and my team would be in the defensive area. When we got a rebound, we would come back up. One game, Chris scored 27 points as a five-year-old. Maybe dad passed the ball to him more than he should have. (laughs) All the way through middle school and high school, I coached Chris's AAU teams. And in high school, they had a summer league and the high school coach couldn't be involved. So they asked me to coach. And we went for a week to the University of Texas. They had a team camp there. And I got to coach and the team played teams from all over the state of Texas. And we lived in the dorm and and we ate meals in the the residential uh, dining area. The very first mission trip I went on, Chris was five, I took 17 people to build homes in Guatemala for Habitat for Humanity. And Chris said, I want to go with you, Daddy, and build houses for poor people. And I said, when you turn 16, I will take you with me. And when Chris was 17, he and I went to Nicaragua. We worked with the Rainbow Network, and then we spent four days in uh, the rainforest together. Now, let me tell you how difficult it was when it was time for Chris to go away to college. I want to tell you the summer between high school graduation and the first day of college goes by very quickly, at least for Dad. And I want to tell you the first 18 years of life goes by very quickly, at least. For dad. We drove Chris to school. We dropped him off. We got everything moved in. And it was a Saturday night. I had to get back home, be ready for Sunday. And Chris, very introverted, said, well, I guess maybe I can go to the cafeteria and get something to eat. And so we stood on the curb and we drove away and we watched in the rearview mirror as he just stood there and got smaller and smaller and smaller but the thing that gave me great comfort. As I peeked in earlier in the day and saw Chris packing, I saw that he packed his Bible. And I was reminded that even on those difficult days, my life and the life of my son are ultimately in the hands of God. That is where our greatest hope comes from. Jesus said to the woman, go and sin no more. It is a message of hope because it reminds us that our Savior expects so much more from us. Let us bow in prayer. Gracious God, I am thankful that even in times of great adversity, we can gather before you and be comforted by your presence with us. Help us to recognize that even in times when we don't fully understand the mystery of life, we can trust in your promises and in your providential care. We ask all these things in Christ's name and for his sake.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from First Christian Church of Van Austin, Disciples of Christ. We are located in Van Austin, Texas at 274 South Waco Street. If you would like to contact us, our office number is 903-482-5515. You can email us at FCCVanOsteen at gmail.com. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.50 a.m., day school at 9.45 a.m., For more information, you can visit us at FCCVATX.org or find us on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and may God bless you.